Institute. My name is Caleb Brown. I'm the director of multimedia here at Cato, and I host the Cato Daily Podcast, which I'll give you a moment to go ahead and subscribe to on your phones. Um, <laughs> tackling these big issues regarding art, taking offense, and free expression are our panelists for this evening. Philip Kennecott is the art and architecture critic at the Washington Post. In 2012, he was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Criticism, and the very next year, the Pulitzer Committee uh, realized their egregious oversight <laughs> and awarded Philip the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism in 2013. Uh, Janice Goodman is a regular panelist on WETA Around Town. She is a professor of fine arts at the Corcoran School of the Arts and Design at George Washington University. Her own work in turns explosive, vibrant, and dark has been featured in or is currently a part of collections too numerous to list here. Uh, there's one piece that we talked about just beforehand, uh, our event today, and I was assured that it had been sold. Uh, Lenny Campello is uh, author of the Daily Campello Art News, one of the web's first art blogs. He's published regularly on the arts. He's an artist himself, and his work has been featured in galleries across the globe. And Jason Kuznicki is a research fellow here at the Cato Institute and editor of Cato Books. He holds a PhD in history from Johns Hopkins University. And related to our discussion today, his doctoral dissertation was on censorship and public accountability in 18th century France. So uh, thank you all for being here today and uh, taking part in this discussion. Uh, I'll start here. What do you see as any relationship between creativity and offensiveness? And I'm just throwing it open. I, I, I'm going to start then, because I, I think sometimes it's what I've discovered. I, I have, I'm Cuban, so let me go down a side hole here in a minute. I, uh, I went to art school in, at the University of Washington, but I was also getting commissioned by the Navy, and they said, we're not giving you a commission with art. So they told me I had to study math because I was going to be a cryptologist. So I was the only person ever in the entire history of this giant school to graduate with a degree in math and art. And I know this because they told me because they had to hand do my diploma instead of printing it on a computer. So I like empirical data, right? And I, I, I've discovered that sometimes, to my own surprise, things that are offensive to some people, in some cases, the artist does not start with, with having it offended. And it could be something as simple as uh, a nude at an outdoor art show, right? We are talking earlier in the green room, which no, none of us can figure out why it's called a green room. But um, So, and then there's, there's, of course, I think, especially today, artists that from the very beginning want to try to create something that's offensive. And sometimes they miss. You know, people like laugh at it instead of being offended. So creativity, in some cases, delivers things that, that are offensive to a set of eyes uh, by accident. And sometimes when they're intended to be offensive, like did, did I, by the way, I'm going to steal that because I saw you had Sally Mann in there. You know, I, I, did Sally Mann ever intended for her photographs to be considered child pornography? Right? I know. So I'm a teacher, and you know, it's my goal to get my students to try and experiment and think about ideas, put their ideas into practice. And so I was think, as I've been thinking about this, I thought, what was the most shocking thing that has occurred in my class? And I've taught for 30 years. So I wrote it down. OK, so this one student 
It's a little bizarre student to begin with, but you know, we have lots of bizarre students in art school. So um, what he did was he built a guillotine and he decapitated a mouse. I like your expression, your non-expression. Okay, and so we walked in, you know, three faculty walk in and there's this, you know, the guillotine comes down and he's just decapitated a mouse. And we were like, Mouse was alive? Yeah, the mouse was alive. Wow. So, you know, it was pretty shocking. And, um, you know, we had to have a conversation about, you know, things that are living. And, you know, but the, the point is, I, I never got the sense that he was doing it um, really to shock. That's what I, 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 my gut feeling from looking at art that shocks, that's not the initial rationale for why the art is being made. Well, to that, to that point then, uh, to what extent and in what circumstances, and I'll throw this out again, should artists be cognizant of the likelihood that something they produce is going to shock or offend? Could I ask a question about the mouse? Yeah. <laughs> White mouse, black, I mean, there was gray blood. mouse. There was, <laughs> one of the faculty practically fainted. It was just, it's like, really? Did this not lead to a discussion about when it's appropriate oh, yeah, to it take Abs animal life? Absolutely. Because uh, we kill animals for food. And uh, for experimentation. We kill animals for experimentation. Uh, why is it that in this particular context it became offensive? Was there something different about this context? Whereas, well, because a, uh, is, is a is a chef. It, it didn't an, have to be a, a chef and artist. It didn't have to be a alive. If he had used an artificial mouse, I think just the notion of the guillotine, you know, probably would have been conceptually as effective. But because it was alive, it, it brought up other whole issues. But I think that, to me, it's like, you know, he could have used a little, you know, there are tons of little mice that you can find around. He didn't have to use a real mouse. But he wanted somehow to make a point about how, you know, experimentation and all these things, and it was a guillotine, and, and he was 20. He's a 20-year-old. I think it's interesting that we jump very quickly to a fairly extreme example right. of the kinds of things we're considering. And the idea of decapitating a mouse in a classroom is one particular context where you can see why the forces might lead um, a kid to do that. Competition, making an impression, mm -hmm. um, doing something that's going to you know, set his work aside from the others. Those pressures operate in the art world, certainly. I mean, there is, we oftentimes go and see art and think that it is being deliberately and not productively confrontational or, or provocative. Mm -hmm. But frankly, I find that I'm not very often offended by the vast majority of the art that I see, and that from within the art world, the conversation isn't really very often about art being offensive. Right. Um, the art world, I, I think these are these are important cases, but we've, we, like I say, I think we've we've immediately zeroed in on um, some fairly specific and not exactly representational cases. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a case that it was on my Facebook feed. Um, this woman, Kate Kretz, have any of you seen that? No, no. Okay, so Kate Kretz is an artist. She's been around for a long time. And she was taking MAGA hats, right? And she was reconfiguring them. And so they were reconfigured into hate hats, right? And Facebook um, said they violated community standards and took down the images and then they disabled her account. 
and you know, they showed, you know, I did get to see some of the images of the, the sculptor, sculptures that she had made. So I thought, huh, that's taking it. I mean, I know they take down pornography and things like that, but I thought that was the first time I, you know, I recall in recent years where something like that, you know, the strong arm of corporate, Google's corporate, had such a large, powerful effect. Kate, um, just for trivia fans, in the early days of Art Basel Week, Kate had the most downloaded image on the internet, like in 2003 or 2004. The reason I remember this is because of the blog, but, uh, and it was an image, a gigantic painting of, uh, what's the actress that looks like this, as married to uh, the guy who played. Uh, I don't know, they all have lips like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, she painted this actress as uh, who adopts all the kids. Angelina. Yes, oh, Angelina, Angelina Jolie right. as the as the Madonna in this enormous painting, and and it cost a furor back in two thousand and three, two thousand and four, whenever that was. And um, for one glorious day, it was the most downloaded image on the internet for some reason before Facebook or yeah. any of that stuff. Is it, you mentioned and something you said, I think struck a chord with me. And please, I don't get offended if you cut me down. I'm Cuban, you know, I talk a lot, so I don't want to take over the conversation. I'm a New Yorker, I talk yeah. a lot. <laughs> so so uh, uh, I'm the same way. You know, I don't really think that I've been exposed to something that I've been offended to the extent that I think these days that word is used or misused. And and the 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 example that you gave reminded me of an assignment. When I was in art school, we had an assignment, and we were supposed to have a show at the Henry Gallery at the University of Washington designed to offend. So mm -hmm. that was the, the assignment. And what I did, I somehow talked every single one of my art school classmates into letting me photograph their privates. <laughs> and I had uh, 26 photographs. And no one got offended except one guy that on his penis had written the word, the word Hitler. And man, that blew the fuse. They, they took the photograph down. And I, I mean, I, I, I had not expected that at all to kind of be the thing. I, I, I was actually aiming to, you know, show the other stuff. So even that was... Well, so I made, a I made a list, okay? And you guys can sort of respond to this too. So I, I was thinking about all the ones in like recent memory or that I could come up where there was a lot of objections. So the de degenerate art during Nazi era, Maplethorpe, which there's gonna be a Maplethorpe show at the Corcoran. There's currently, I think, a Maplethorpe show that just recently was in New York at the Guggenheim. Um, Dana Schutz's painting of Emma Till and the Whitney, last Whitney Biennial, Sally Mann child pornography, the Danish cartoons depicting the prophet Mohammed, Charlie Hebdo, a French satirical magazine, 12 people got killed, Belgian carnival parade in the town of Alst recently where it depicted two Orthodox Jews with bags of money, satanic verses by Salman Rushdie and a fatwa, am I pronouncing that right, fatwa, issued against him, I am Paik when he covered the Louvre, um, Ladies Chatterley's Lover, John Waters, so it's, I mean, this is enormous, right? And the range is actually from political correctness, right? Religious. So, um, you know, a lot of the things that you just described are books that were printed millions of times, films that can easily be copied and distributed. So to you, Jason, and to you, Philip, you know, there was a time when in order to be offended by art, you had to be of a certain class mm -hmm. because you had to either you know, be regarded well enough to be allowed to come look at it. Uh, anymore, you can 
snap a photo and share it widely. You, you had to be of a certain class or it had to be a piece of public art, something in a public square or in a church where anyone can come in and see it. And there were cases like that. That's happened before. Um, this is where we get the custom of putting fig leaves on, on uh, paintings and statues because in the Renaissance and, and on afterward, certain people were offended. And not only that, in, in the case of something like a book, um, it actually takes a certain amount of energy to go and get offended by material in the book. You've got to find the book and read the book. Um, <laughs> got to use the, the U.S. The, mail if you really want to communicate something. Book cover. So there, you know, there are different categories for these kinds of offense, and there, there are some kinds of art um, that even if they're not in a public place, and even if we don't go to the effort of finding it and reading it, the mere fact that it exists may offend us. Um, you know, it, it offends me that there are statues of Nathan Bedford Forrest in certain towns in the South that I've never been to. That very fact um, is offensive to me. So, you know, I, I think that these are these are different phenomena, and it's not, you know, the, the classic case of like confronting a painting in a public place that offends you because of nudity or some other thing. That's that's also just a one piece of this whole thing. The harder one is to really talk about that sort of art that offends you by its very existence. You know, and I think today it's less shocking and it's more about what is politically correct. Or pol that's to seem, that seems to me now there's like the Dana shoots. How dare she, you know, talk about Emma Till? How, you know, and that seems that there seems to be a shift away from how dare you, you know, depict you know, Mohammed in a certain way. How dare you do something like this rather than you show nudity or, I don't know. And I guess maybe that's the politics that has entered the political climate that has entered into our um, Western society. I don't know if it's in Eastern society. You know, you say politically correct, but there's always been something that is a proxy for politically correct. As we were talking before we uh, came out here today, the, the problem might be if today offending a wide, a wide range of people, whereas historically, maybe you only needed to offend one guy to really yep. face wrath. Um, you know, <coughs> Chairman, Chairman Mao himself says, art must function as a cog in a larger machine, as part of the revolution. Uh, Jason, as you and I, as you were pounding me with facts about the 18th century and France and art and how it, how it functioned there, uh, you told me about the, was it officially licensed theaters? Oh yeah, so there are two <laughs> theaters that the king approved of in Paris and anything else was not licensed and not approved of and you weren't supposed to go there. And uh, not only that, but the church did not approve of the theater in general. And uh, you could read books by contemporary uh, clerics who said uh, anyone associated with the theater who writes for it, who acts and plays, they're all going to hell. And uh, we will not bury actors and actresses in consecrated ground. This was uh, something that the church, at least in France, took very seriously, even at the same time that the pope had his own acting troupe. But the French clergy wanted to be very strict about this, and they did not approve of the theater because it depicted something that was essentially false. It was a school where you learned how to be someone you were not. And why should we tolerate that in our society? You know, we've obviously moved from that point to a society where we expect there to be a multiplicity of messages rather than a single understanding of the state, a single understanding of power. 
We were speaking in the green room before. Apparently, we had the best conversation there. You guys, <laughs> yeah, right. you should have come. We should have taken um, it. Leave it in the green room. We, have, we left it all there. Um, but we were speaking about you know the the kinds of public art in Washington that you probably couldn't put up today. Um, that would be too controversial to to put out. And I, and I was sort of um, amused by the irony of um, this Samuel Gomper statue right outside the Cato Institute. Um, that's probably something you've been amused by too over the years. Um, but it struck me that probably when that statue went up, there wasn't the sense that everyone had to give their assent to it, that you could have a lot of different sort of statues and that some would appeal to some constituencies and others would appeal to other constituencies. And that was kind of okay. You may not like the fact that there is a statue of somebody who was on the other side of the, the class war, or the labor divide from you, but you had your own statues of some sort. And I, I do think we may be moving in you know, to a point where it's great that we're all, in a sense, enfranchised as critics, but we're also getting to the point where we feel we all have kind of a veto over um, this multiplicity of messages. And that makes it very hard then to find any one thing that can go up and, and, and get that kind of universal assent. You know, you mentioned the, the, the fact that it, at once upon a time it took a great deal of effort to, to be offended, to be... Uh, sharply critical of art, and, and certainly you couldn't uh, easily broadcast your opinion uh, widely. Um, today, there are two things at work, it seems, that one, you can broadcast your opinion widely, and you can do so very quickly. That is, whatever the visceral reaction you have to some piece of art might be the one that uh, catches like wildfire, that spreads very very rapidly, and so it's simply uh, a lower barrier to entry to be offended by something. So I was thinking about, so who benefits from censorship? The censors, I hope. No, really, who benefits from censorship? Sometimes the artist. Because it, it the, puts the work yeah, into the public domain. A, and it puts a, almost like a, an intended focus on, on the artist. You know, I, my stuff got you know, censored. And now people want to see what get what what was about it that made it censorable, like that guy a few years ago that had the painting of President Obama burning the Constitution. Did a whole series of them, and you know, nobody heard of him until that became censored or whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, he was like was being interviewed on TV, and so yeah, I, maybe that's also unintended, but I think it brings some focus to the artist, Kate. It's, it's an important question, and you know, I think usually the answer to who benefits from censoring art is that the people who are censoring it benefit in some way. They're able to control messages that mm -hmm. they, they feel important. But you know, we're in the middle of a conversation in this country now about whether or not um, we want to live surrounded by images of Civil War generals. I found this a really right. important test case. Um, if you are constantly being confronted in the public square with a work of art that tells you that your ancestors were once enslaved and that was a good and noble thing, um, you benefit by not having to confront that image on a regular basis. So it, it's hard to find the one-size-fits-all approach to the idea that, that um, when you put something in a public place, we are collectively making a statement. Um, you know, if, if, if a town commissions a work of art, um, they do have an interest in how that work functions. I mean, the classic case would be the Richard Serra right. um, case in, in New York, I think right. it was in the 1980s. Um, a great artist, Richard Serra, created a piece called Tilted Ark, 
This was a big band of rusting metal put across the middle of a widely trafficked public square, and it was it was hated. Um, right. The arts community embraced it, and and there was a they cast the conversation about it in terms of his freedom of expression and the importance of art that challenges us and all of that. But the people who lived at that square, who had to pass through it on a regular basis, really hated it. And eventually it was taken down. Um, was that censorship? I don't know. But certainly the people who felt a kind of ownership over that public space benefited by the removal of it. But, so, that, but were they, they were not, it didn't seem to be offended by the sub subjective content of the art. They seemed to be offended that there wasn't like a gate that you could go through. Yeah, I think some of the people were offended because it blocked a lot of light. It, you know, people that actually were in buildings nearby had this big metal object obstructing their view of, the, of an open space. It closed in a space that had once been open. These aren't unreasonable objections, but they apply to a lot more than just art. A lot of urban planning disrupts mm -hmm. neighborhoods and uh, destroys perfectly good buildings in the name of urban renewal and likewise cuts people off from the familiar surroundings. Well, you know, it's interesting because I'm very interested in architecture and I must say of all contemporary things, I find a lot of architecture offensive. Of all things that are in a public domain are, I don't know who was wrote about um, the, all the new architecture on Massachusetts. Um, was it Ben Fogey talked, or maybe you said it, it was the um, mediocre mile? Yeah, that was me. <laughs> you know, and I thought. <laughs> <laughs> where, it's on mass. It's where on does it start and where does it end? <laughs> Just that way. Just yeah. right. But, but, it's, but it's true. I mean, I walk by certain buildings and I think, I don't understand how were they able to get away with putting up a building like this. I have to see it all the time. They've taken away, you know. And so that's one area where I do take offense. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We, when, when somebody commissions a building, they put a lot of thought into what they want from that building. And it's not seen as in any way restrictive of the architect's freedom to get this, this fairly long proposal. This building must do this. It must have this kind of message. And then the architects will work within those parameters, hopefully produce a building that everybody finds useful. Um, it's a very different sort of thing with an artist. I think rightly so. You want to preserve the maximum amount of freedom of expression. But you know, I think that, that when you commission, especially public works of art, it doesn't take a lot of forethought to realize that you may go to one kind of artist for a mural in an elementary school and another uh, sort of artist if you're commissioning works for an academic exhibition on race and gender. Um, and you know, I think a little more thought beforehand um, might you know, kind of stave off some of these controversies after these things happen. So the other thing I was thinking about, so when there is an objection to some kind of piece of art, whether it's three-dimensional or two-dimensional? Is it because the art is speaking some kind of language that is problematic to hear, where if we were to read the words, it couldn't be said in words, it couldn't be spelled out, but somehow it's inferred or it's implied in, in, in imagery or in sculpture? Is that what's creating you know, sort of the, the unrest in, in looking at a piece or a... I think in a, in a, in a sense, I'm going to offer my answer and yeah. others, but I, I think that people have a sense that art is a higher language. And then when you take a message from our ordinary realm and put it into the artistic realm, that is therefore an honorific to that message. Mm -hmm. It somehow sanctifies that message in some way. And so by making it in art, they may actually be more offended than they would if they read it in the sort of literal sense that you were thinking mm -hmm. of. 
-hmm. A good example of that is um, my father was in the Cuban Revolution and he fought under Che Guevara. And I'm probably the only person in this entire room that I actually have met Che Guevara. I don't remember because I was very little, but there is a photograph of Che holding me and my dad. Um, and my father hated Guevara afterwards because if anybody who's read the official history of the Cuban Revolution, Guevara and somebody else would never identify with the only two communists in the entire revolution. In fact, the Communist Party was on the side of Batista, the other guy. Uh, but uh, when I sort of left, I was raised in Brooklyn, and when I sort of left New York and was walking around, I used to be really offended every time I saw a T-shirt with Che Guevara's picture. But I discovered that 99.9% .9 of the people had no idea who that guy was, right? Uh, and then I kind of used it as a cultural educational thing when the opportunity presented uh, itself. Like at America, my wife's a professor at American, and there was a lady who used to teach across from her. And of all things, she taught the history of racism and all that. And she had a poster of Che Guevara on her door. And I think I broke her heart when I gave her as a gift uh, uh, a diary of Che Guevara, highlighted with all the really racist things that he wrote uh, about uh, Mexicans and black people uh, and all that. And, and it was just a matter of almost like the lack of a cultural background on that. And you know, there's still people that probably have no idea that walking around with you know, that really cool picture by Corda on there. By the way, he never got a penny for that. Uh, <laughs> used, so to be, I, used to be able to buy those in the Sam, local Sam Goody store, by the way. That really interesting, yeah. Not in Miami, but I'm sure of that. <laughs> <laughs> the Che Guevara t-shirt with the Mickey Mouse ears is a, a yeah. hot, It's very popular yeah. now. According to Sotheby's, it's the most reprodu reproduced photograph in history because it's in vodka in France and in <laughs> cigarettes and, of course, in every T-shirt. So, Lenny, you mentioned something earlier about artwork that is given official sanction, and the phrase that immediately came to my mind was, this won't play in Peoria <laughs> for yeah. r films that were considered too racy or had uh, subject matter that couldn't be uh, just the, the local town. The local custom would not allow this film to play. And that, that was taken... Uh, by some as a badge of honor, that this film banned in Peoria, or in the case of Robert Maplethorpe, banned in DC, banned in Cincinnati. Um, you know, to, to what extent is art uh, taken uh, and created in such a way that in our modern media landscape that they can get that visceral reaction and then catapult themselves to more greater notoriety and actually, you know, make hay? Well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I think initially art was local. And then over time, it's become national, international, global. And I think when it was local, I'm, I don't know, I'm just speculating, um, it wasn't meant to be played in Peoria. It was meant for the library at the, you know, in downtown Brooklyn or, or you know, um, it was for Hollywood, and then it got distributed, you know? So I think because we're in a period of globalization, that I, I, and even though that phrase is, is predates the internet, um, I think everything is everywhere right now, and perhaps wasn't intended to be everywhere. But I think you're also asking, is there a kind of art that is deliberately provocative for the sake of the kind of benefit that comes from, from being provocative, the, the notoriety? I think that's, that's true. Um, it does. I, I think there are some pretty good um, filters in the art world that can 
in a sense, filter that stuff out. I mean, there are curators who um, have some say over what they want to show, gallery owners, museum directors, Collectors. critics, writers. Um, and, you know, there are some artists, it's, it's fairly rare. I can think of a couple examples of artists who have made their career entirely out of what seem like fairly empty provocations, but mostly um, artists like everybody else mature over time. Um, I certainly write in a more measured way than I did when I was in my 20s, and I think hopefully the artist that you were teaching who chopped the head off a mouse is um, now doing lovely watercolors. I, I doubt <laughs> it. He was, he was climbing up buildings in London the last time I heard. <laughs> so how does one get to be a censor? Yeah, Generally, it's, because because I'd, I'd be great at it. It's, it's when people really enjoy the work. Uh, it's not necessarily the best paying job in the world, but if you really enjoy the work, you take your benefit that way. And uh, this is why censorship regimes tend to be unreasonably severe, because uh, people who are unreasonably severe gravitate to those jobs. Hmm. I'm a little curious about when you say, how does one get to be a censor? Um, well, we, you know, we, we've, to the extent that you say the art world can, can serve as a filter, uh, to the extent that the filter has been bypassed um, and there are groups of people who, I, I guess, get something out of being offended, uh, get, get something out of uh, issuing a harsh judgment for something that you know, offends their sensibilities. And I think very often those people come from outside of the art world. Um, right. Most of the, many of the major controversy that Janice mentioned um, were really ginned up from people kind of coming into museums, not from within the museum context, not right. within the arts context, right. but found that there was particular political advantage to um, pulling something out of context, um, making it particularly sensational, and, and then making a lot of noise about it. Um, we rely on institutions to have um, intestinal fortitude when it comes to resisting that sort of thing. Um, how effective, how effective is the art world today at resisting attempts to censor or have things removed in general? Well, I, what strikes my, me is that um, you, know, you can go into some exhibitions and there will be a sign that says some of the information in this video might be found offensive, you know, or it'll be put behind a, a wall or something so that it's not visible as you, as you walk through it. That's what has struck me the most about exhibitions, you know, where there's a disclaimer. Some of this material may be, and just like you see on television or you see on, or you hear on the radio, this might be offensive to someone. Um, but there's, I just can't think of things I've seen that are, you know, are offensive. I may not like it, and I might find it offensive yeah, because I think right. it's poorly made or because it's like, well, why are you doing that? And, but so it's an intellectual offense rather right. than an aesthetic or a political right, offense. Right, but you also, you also bring to this an enormous experience. So in the sense that you're more open to a lot of things, maybe you have some blinders on with respect to how people viscerally react mm -hmm. to things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, Good point. I, I think that... The mainstream art world, the, thing, you know, the sort of art world that, that we think of when we think of the Venice Biennale or the New York art scene or Smithsonian museums, um, that there is a fairly widely understood principle of, of kind of maximum freedom of expression possible within a public institution. But you know, I was struck recently at an exhibition that I saw 
of a group of painters that were called the Afrocobra Group. Um, these were um, uh, black nationalist painters. They were painters who worked in a really, really colorful style. Um, really bright day glow reds and greens and blues and a very fractured surface. Um, and this art is only now, I think, mm -hmm. just beginning to get a toehold within, um, within American museums because it looked wrong. It looked to um, even probably socially progressive museum directors, it looked like something else. Um, it didn't, it didn't it didn't obey the rules, just the visual rules. Even if you set aside the content, it seemed too loud, too noisy. Um, Norm, Norm Parrish, who used to own Parrish Gallery in Canal mm -hmm. Square, was one of them. Right. It was an effort. Mm -hmm. okay. And there was a connection, yeah. Um, and it's just now that people are actually doing, in some ways, the much harder work than saying, accepting a message that you find controversial. They're, they're having to do the work of recalibrating their eyes, mm. of actually looking at this art in a different way and setting aside um, some very deeply held assumptions about what, what well-behaved art looks like. And I mean, if you look at what's going on right now in the art world, um, you know, th there have been articles in the New York Times, maybe the New Yorker, about all these older African-American artists that were completely bypassed by the big mainstream, and suddenly, you know, they're showing in all these New York galleries, and you know, they're in their 80s, and they're being asked to turn out all this work um, for collectors, and you know, so, so, so that is in keeping with what you're saying. It's like, you know, there are people that are marginalized because traditionally the art world does come out of a certain class. Mm -hmm. It did. It, it, that is changing very much now. But also the, the idea that people in the museum world are professionals. That's the other thing. Those people have been trained. They've studied. They've traveled. So you expect a certain level of intelligence and understanding being brought to whatever they're doing. They're not just you know, people that are doing this part time. Is there a risk uh, that the kind of reconsideration of art that was either, either deemed offensive or bad that were choking off the ability to do that kind of reconsideration or you know, possibly as technology helped us develop ways of you know, art that otherwise would have been destroyed uh, hundreds of years ago can be reevaluated over time. Well, I think the umbrella is so much larger today as to what is considered art. That, um, you know, if you call it art, it's art. And really, that's, I, th I think, right? It's okay. like, you know, you consider it's art, it's art. I don't necessarily consider it art. Um, I think we need some new nomenclature actually in the arts, I think would be really helpful. I think a lot of stuff is sociology, but. Um, but if you call it art, it's art. What of the distinction then bet between uh, places that display art, uh, many are public, some are private. Mm -hmm. uh, to the extent that people become offended by a piece, what difference does that make? What difference should that make? I, I, I think what you're saying is I, something along the lines of, I wrote an article maybe 30 years ago, it was called He Who Owns the Walls. And that was more in the context, of, in fact, it was a law office here that used to offer their boardroom to local artists to hang work, right? So I was trying to think of a censor, and they had someone whose job was to ensure that whatever was hung in there, and it made sense, right, because that's where they entertained their clients, was not offensive to anyone. 
and it was, and I knew the person, and it was always a mystery to me, the angle, until it was explained. And there was always a logical part to it. But even he got bit once in a while by, <laughs> by something that someone uh, would find offensive. So, so yeah, the, the, he who owns the walls, I think, a lot of times gets to dictate the artist or the public or even the people that work in that place may not like it. But, you know, on the other hand, I, th I think sometimes it's not bad to take offense at something because it stops you in your tracks. No. And ideally, if you're a thinking individual, right. you question, like, well, why am I being, why am I being offended well, by this? Well, you hope that's what and you ask. What? You hope you ask yeah, yourself you hope that, that right? right? And that it sticks in your head. And I, I don't think it's so fleeting. I think if you're offended by something, it comes back to you, and you think about it, and it's like, well, maybe it makes you question. Ideally, it makes you question your values a little bit or your, you know, preconceived ideas. I mean, hopefully, that's what happens. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to second that. I uh, don't know that offense is necessarily a bad thing. I, I would like, though, to see a healthy gap between taking offense and state intervention to suppress the offensive thing. So uh, uh, maybe we could talk about that. About uh, uh, the role that taking a good, honest offense and then doing nothing about it or just introspecting about it plays. You know, can, we, can we do more of that and have more of that and accept that there could be a kind of offense that doesn't lead immediately to censorship? And you know, uh, the, the offensive art might be the thing that is the most deeply affecting. That is, it's, it's dissonant in a way that is, com is supremely compelling. So dismissing something as offensive is not, dismissing it just because it is offensive is not, doesn't seem particularly useful. You know, I, like I said before, I think in fact it sometimes enhances and elevates it and glorifies it even a little more than if it had been ignored. I mean, has one ever actually changed one's opinion on something as a result of being offended by a film, a piece of literature that it's like, God, I, you know, God, I hate that. I never really thought about something like that. That's horrible. But then, I don't know. I mean, is, are there cases of that where you... I, I think we, we often evolve in our, our reactions. I, you know, I was struck um, maybe about a month ago, my newspaper ran a uh, column by one of our conservative op-ed writers. Um, he had been traveling in Spain, and he went to the Bilbao Museum, and he saw a Jenny Holzer exhibition. Mm. Apparently, he'd never heard of Jenny Holzer before, and he was just <laughs> offended. But what was amusing about the piece is that he um, began by writing about how much he loved Frank Gehry's design for the museum in Bilbao. This was a design that was deeply controversial. Right. Um, a lot of people were offended by it um, when it happened. So in one sense, he had evolved um, in his, you know, his thinking, presumably. I, mean, I, shouldn't, in, I, don't, I have no idea what he thought of Gehry 20 years ago. But you know, here's, here's somebody who um, was reflexively offended by um, political art in the walls but actually has a fairly developed um, appreciation for what was a kind of a complicated aesthetic architecturally mm -hmm. um, some 20 or 30 years after it's been built. Um, I, mean, I, think, I think we often grow up. And I think sometimes we get more offended as we realize um, ways in which certain works 
um, embed prejudice, bigotry, um, as we come to understand that, you know, more deeply. Uh, I mean, I remember reading Jane Austen when I was 14 years old, and I was incredibly offended by the world that she depicted. I didn't yet have the capacity to realize that she was being satirical. Um, you know, once I developed that, I realized, you know, what a magnificent author she was. And I think that, you know, that same process of learning that not every statement that a work of art makes is a literal statement. Not every statement it makes is actually endorsed by the artist. That's part of our the, the maturation with art that we go through. And I also think it raises it raises a conversation, as I mentioned earlier, the Dana Schutz piece that was in, you know, the Whitney Biennial about Emmett Till. It's like, you know, how do we depict the other? Are we entitled, you know, just raise, it's an interesting intellectual exercise. Just, you know, are, you know, artists have always done that, given the voice of somebody else. Um, and so I think in that case, I mean, I thought it was, I didn't think it was legitimate, the actual arguments that were, sort of aimed at her, but it did make me think about the idea and the notions of do you, who has ownership to imagery, to content that's not personal, that's not firsthand, that's not, uh, that I didn't experience. Do I have ownership to something else? I think that case is a really important one, and it is likely to put people like us in a very uncomfortable position. If you hadn't followed this, this is a mm -hmm. case of um, a very fine um, white artist who did a painting um, quite expressionistic um, based on that horrific picture of Emmett Till in his, in his casket. Right. And it was attacked by an African-American artist, or actually I'm not sure if she might have been um, British, but it was attacked by an artist of color who made an argument about appropriation, that it is not right mm -hmm. for a white artist to exploit or profit from the, the pain, the suffering of, of this African-American, that this is a narrative um, that she had no right to appropriate or, or to use. Um, that's in, in, uh, just to push, push back on that just a little bit, it was my understanding, and I could be wrong, that Emmett Till's mother made the decision to open that casket. I think that's right. Because mm -hmm. she wanted that image right. to be seen as widely as possible. Right. So in that context, what is appropriation? It, you know, it, I, I watched that debate and with very, very mixed feelings. Because the arguments about appropriation are important arguments, um, especially um, the notion of exploiting a pain that you, haven't, that you haven't personally lived through. My sense was that take those arguments and bring them to the door of Hollywood. Um, don't bring them to the door of a white artist who was making that painting, I think, in good faith. There's a word that we don't often use much in criticism anymore, and, and that is um, intention. What did the artist actually mm -hmm. intend to do? Mm -hmm. That kind of fell out of the way we talk about art about a half century ago for some important reasons. Um, art often has things in it that we didn't intend to put into it, and we can talk about those things. But when it fell out, we lost an important nuance when we think about what an artist like Dana Schutz was doing. Mm -hmm. I don't think there was ever any intention on her part to profit from, mm -hmm. exploit, or in any way um, arrogate to her the cultural meaning of, of Emmett Till. No, she, I mean, she had talked about that she has children and she was responding to it. I mean, this, I'm sure there were other reasons as a mother, as a parent that who, who is, you know, could potentially lose a child. But I remember, it's so, so okay, so here's a case where did she have the right to depict this? And I was thinking many years ago, I read the book called My Life as a Geisha. I don't, I don't, 
Does anybody here remember who? OK. And I love the book. I love the book. And I remember reading an interview with the writer. And initially, the book was written in the third person. And then an editor or a friend said to him, you know, if you change it and you put it in the first person, it'll be a lot stronger. So you read the book as though it was the geisha talking to us through the book. And I thought that was so effective. Now, this man was a white man, he wasn't Asian, and he wasn't female. You know, so, so the, my point is that this, the, the incident with Dana made me begin to think about all these other art forms where we do you know, take or assume a role, or, or imagine, or project. I think the test of time is the ultimate. We'll see in 20, 30 years what people think about that painting. Just like I remember when uh, the Vietnam Memorial was first built, you know, that was a, a lot right. of people hated that. And now it's probably the, the most, right. the number one. One of the most affecting yeah, monuments exactly. in Washington, D.C. So sometimes time tends to be the real true critic of what's offensive or not, right? Because there were a lot of people that were very offended. They called it a wound in the earth. Right. I remember those adjectives. Like, right now, I'm actually particularly offended by the Korean one because I think those tattoos are terrible. But um, I've, I've have friends who are <laughs> veterans who say that's the most accurate depiction And of then, war. exactly, everyone that I take there, when they come to visit, you know, I, we always end up in a semi-argument over it. Yeah, but there are proportions. But, but what if the Vietnam Memorial had to have been removed? It wasn't. Remember what they did? They added that, the statue. Those figures. Yeah, those figures, because that's what the... Right, but what if it had to have been removed? Yeah, and then that's, that would have been, who knows, horrible. Because that does happen now, Yeah. where they're actually removed. The work is taken off the walls. Or covered, like uh, the, the, I can't think of any... Yeah, or there's a, there's a building here in Washington, I can't think of the name now, that has murals that has been covered since the Clinton administration. They, they, they depict uh, the murals, the WPA murals. Ah, uh, jeez, I'll, I'll think of it in a minute. I'll think at 3 o'clock in the morning tonight. Um, they depict, like, the history of the West, right? And they show fighting between Native Americans and the settlers and scalping, you know, pretty violent kind of murals. Um, and yeah, they've been, they've been covered uh, since. Um... I, I think there are a couple of principles emerging out of this that are worth keeping in mind. Um, one is that when we're dealing with public works like the Vietnam Memorial, to try and make those decisions over a longer period of time than we're inclined to make decisions right. today in public life. Um, the longer you ruminate the decision, the more voices you bring in, the more likely you are not to regret the decision you make. And that is, and the other is to make the the decisions, you know, the least irrevocable as possible. Um, in the Dana Schutz case, the, the protesters not only wanted the painting removed from the way, they wanted it destroyed. That yeah. was part of the demands. And I think there were two very different claims on our, on our sympathy with the argument to say, take this painting down versus destroy this mm -hmm. painting. So when you make a decision, a revocable decision is always a good one when you're dealing with something like art or the humanities because we do evolve on these things. <laughs> Uh, you know, we can reevaluate art over decades, but in the meantime, uh, artists who've dedicated themselves to the craft, um, they got to eat. And uh, to the extent that offense is going to, uh, or concern about offense, might be robbing someone of their livelihood from, you know, willing buyers or not potentially not being exposed to people who get it. Uh, you know, what do you all think about that? I mean, art is a, it's a commercial enterprise. 
is a commodity. Yeah. You know, I have this. I, I have this sort of little slogan that when it's in my studio, it's art, and when it leaves my studio, it's business. I do. I, th I think of it that way. So I guess in you know in terms of what you're saying, I think when one is working in one studio or in whatever on one film, I don't think these. I don't necessarily think these other considerations play a large part. Um, I think they play a part upon completion and upon distribution and upon trying to get it birthed into the world. But I don't think the consideration is necessarily made. I mean, it might be made more in film because you can edit and you can change the ending, et cetera. But I don't really think that it's a part of the sensibility when you're working on something. I don't know. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah no, completely, I agree. That's and if it is, are you just a bad artist? What? If that is a part of your consideration, are you just not a good artist, or are you a timid artist? There are plenty of artists who design in, who, who do their work in the context of commercial products, though, that uh, it's intensely commercial. Uh, uh, no one who makes films in Hollywood is doing it just for art's sake. Let's just be honest about this. There's, it's a big business. And, uh, Honestly, I'm grateful for the existence of a commercial art market and a commercialized art market in which art is presented in the context of crassly consumer products because if it weren't for that, there would be a whole lot less art and we would have to agree on some form of art that was sufficiently inoffensive to always exist in the public square. And I don't know that we can do that. You know, you're talking about film. I think when the, the rights to a book are purchased by someone, I think they think this would be a really interesting film. That's my gut. I think it really is more, it might, they might think commercial, but from what I've spoken with people who have been involved with the film, it's like, no, this would make a really dynamic film. And then it proceeds from there. Um, so I don't know. I, I, my gut is that there's a little bit more... I don't know, maybe I'm naive purity in it, or more, um, even commercial artists, you know, you have, to, you, ha you have to then go in and face that studio every day, you know, and to churn out. I mean, th there's all levels of art being made, and I think what we have been talking about is perhaps not initially commercially driven, even though commission work is commercially driven, um, but I think we've not been talking about perhaps that kind of art, and that raises maybe other issues. Although, just like, sorry. Well, I was going to say, I'm not quite as sanguine about the, the benefits of the art market as it's currently constituted for the, um, the well-being of artists writ large and the diversity of messages that get said. You know, if you're an artist working in New York and increasingly in Washington, it is really hard to find studio space to work in. Um, you're being priced out of the sort of buildings that are big enough to, to, to make work in. Um, increasingly, as the market becomes so top-heavy with a certain kind of high-dollar high art, um, smaller galleries aren't surviving. Smaller galleries were the entry system for artists into this world. Um, like a lot of industries, once you know, the market realizes there's a ton of money to be made, it can actually get much more constricting for people kind of coming into the, into the market. Um, and I, you know, you were asking a question about whether or not um, artists were in a sense being starved out of the market by making work that was, you know, messages that were offensive or something or, or taking risks in their art. I mean, mainly artists are being starved out of the market by a lack of interest in art. 
it, it, it's much broader. I don't think the number of cases where an artist is sort of courageously going down with the ship because they had this message they need to stick to. Yeah, that happens from time to time. That mainly artists are just being driven out of art because they can't mm -hmm. make a living doing it. There's a, an excellent show up now at SAM. It's um, American Artists Respond to the Vietnam War. And if you haven't seen it, you definitely want to go see the exhibition. And there's a case where I'm sure 99.9% .9 of that work, had, the, the artist never thought it would be sold. That it was really a purely an emotional, intellectual response to what was going on in the Vietnam War. Now, that said, you know, this was, the Vietnam War was over, what, 40, 50 years ago? 1974. So the real estate market was very different. The cost of living was very different. You could afford to do, to work on things then that you can't afford to do now because you have so many other part-time jobs to sort of sustain yourself. So that really has influence, maybe. How much of that is a housing policy problem rather than an art problem? <laughs> I mean, if, if it were uh, the case that DC lifted its height restrictions on buildings. You would see a lot Don't of cheap do that. housing. Well, <laughs> you would see a lot of cheap housing, and then artists would be able to gather and get together in less expensive spaces and practice their craft. I don't see the problem with that. I don't I, know that that's a correct assumption that you're making. Uh, the rent would go down. I don't it's know a that they would go down. It's a question of supply and demand. The rent would go down. Uh, there's a lot of building going on now. I have a, a, a friend who's a real estate person and uh, they're in the real estate world they have they have a name for it too where the curious case of for example Alexandria 40 50 years ago where a neighborhood is in such a low state that the rents are very low so the two most likely businesses in the United States to fail are number one restaurants number two art galleries so what happens um, according to the Chamber of Commerce statistics by the way again empirical um, <laughs> So, so when, when those people emptied the torpedo factory and they started that, back 40, 50 years ago, downtown Alexandria was full of restaurants, uh, one-of-a-kind restaurants, mm -hmm. and studios and, and co-op galleries and all that. And then that cycle begins to catch, right? Then California Kitchen and Subway and whatever says, huh, a lot of tourists and a lot of people are going there. And that, that, there's a name for that cycle. Eventually, 40, 50 years later, People, the tourists realize, hey, this is just like a cookie cutter of any other place I've been, so it's not, not different anymore. And they stop going, and it starts all over again. Same thing happened in, um, in two blocks up from the, the waterfront in downtown Annapolis, right? If you walk two blocks up on the other side of the circle there, that was all dead, you know? And that's where all, that's where all the galleries and everything was. And now, you know, they've been priced out, so it's all, but then it'll, it'll cycle back again. So, but I agree, I don't think that elevating... I don't like that. That's one of the things I like about Washington. I don't think raising the, the height of I knew this would descend make. into a policy discussion. We're going to pause there. And uh, before we go to questions, uh, I want to say please wait to be called on uh, by a staff member. They'll bring you a microphone. And this is very important. Once you have the microphone, make sure, please introduce yourself if you care to. If you're a Banksy, don't feel free not to. Um, and state your question and I can't stress this enough, in the form of a question. Can I say one last thing while the microphone is being brought around? Sorry. Uh, so illustration, that's, that's also an interesting thing to me because, again, you can apply father time to that. That tends to circle back and become high art sometimes, right? 
look at ukiyo-e, you know, Japanese bootblock mm -hmm. printing. You know, mm -hmm. the Japanese thought of that as disposable comic book type sort of stuff, right? And it wasn't until a, another culture looked at it and go, wow, this is really good stuff. Or Robert Crumb, mm -hmm. you know, the cartoonist, right? right? Right. Now, you know, all of a sudden he's in the Philadelphia Museum of Art, but, you know, 40, 50 years ago, in fact, Crumb couldn't do those really offensive cartoons that he did. John, then, what, John Waters. Now, yeah, exactly, Waters. So that, those, even that commercial, illustrative kind of stuff, the best-selling artist in the world is Jack Vetriano, a Scottish mind guy that taught himself how to paint and who is hated universally in Britain. And he's never included in any art book because of the way, the, it, it, and if, catch me outside and I'll tell you a couple of the paintings, you'll know exactly. Highest-selling painter in the world. Wow. All right, we have several questions. Let's start with two in the front and then this lady toward the back here. Um, my name is Stephen Keat. I don't mind identifying myself. First, thank you for a very interesting conversation. Uh, I'm thinking, well, you, you said something about people becoming commercially successful because they become controversial. And that made me think about um, an album as nasty as we want to be. Two Live Crew. Two Live Crew, yes. Um, which was banned uh, by a judge in Florida. And the publicity uh, caused the album sales to shoot up. And I know I, for example, bought that album. I listened to it maybe twice. Uh, and you know, so the, the judge did them a favor, yeah. but then they went and they did an album with the, um, with the authorization from Bruce Springsteen called Band in the USA, which I would recommend that Cato make its theme song because it's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so my question is, while yes, this can go and have an effect of boosting uh, sales, can't it also have an effect in taking someone who at least I would argue was not really producing art, but getting them to be inspired and to produce true art. Historically, there's been an interesting interplay between grossly offensive art and uh, somewhat more respectable intellectual art in that censors hated them both. And uh, this was the case certainly in the Enlightenment in France when the censors were as likely to go after pornography as they were to go after Voltaire. And uh, booksellers had a term for this. They were called philosophical books. The philosophical books could be actual philosophical books or they could be pornography. Or they could be, in some cases, a little bit of both because there were some books like that. Uh, Diderot wrote uh, a pretty uh, salacious book among his, uh, his other uh, philosophical books. Uh, so there, yeah, there have been cases uh, long before Two Live Crew where, uh, where there's been some, some overlap between them, in part because they end up occupying similar spaces. You know, they get sent to the same prisons. They uh, <laughs> have to, have to uh, defend themselves in the same courts and, uh, and often end up... Uh, end up being associated with one another just because of the dynamics of the book or the art trade, as it were. 
I think the Diderot example is a really interesting one. Here's, here's a guy who very early in his career runs afoul of the yep. king and the French government and is so scared by his encounter with him that he essentially goes underground and writes some of the most radical, um, not just radical in the message, but radical in the form and the whole conceptualization um, philosophical tracks, never publishing them during his lifetime. Would he have done that? Um, probably not, because he had to work underground. So in a sense, he, you know, by that early encounter with an oppressive authority, he makes a creative space that never would have made, I think, in any other, any other sense. The thing is, it's hard to sort of compare then to now because of the nature of information, transmission of yeah. information now. You know, so for then it seemed logical. I'm even thinking of someone who, maybe like Van Gogh, who never really sold and who, you know, then had this urge just to keep on working, 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 where, I mean, a lot of people don't really sell today either, but it's just, we're, we're living in just such a commercial environment, a global commercial environment now that, I don't know, it's hard to use historical precedent as meat for today's environment, that's all. Right up here. Augustus Salzona, since um, somebody had mentioned about the um, Confederate statues, et cetera, and part of people's history, uh, one of the things which popped in my head, and there is a question at the end of this, was um, when ISIS and other um, terrorists, however, you know, defined, they were started blowing up ancient mm. artifacts in uh, Iraq, in Syria during the Syrian mm -hmm. civil war was going on, and I'm thinking to myself, if there was any single act which would have turned the indigenous people, people who've been there for centuries or whatever, and their statues of their ancestors, no matter how whatever they may have been, that that probably increased the fury uh, that we gotta get these people right. who came in after us and are ruining our country and, and have destroyed our heritage. Now, I'm not saying that there's necessarily a comparison, but then I can imagine the rage that possibly some people whose ancestors, uh, you know, it's like des to some people it's desecrating graves or, or things like that, the amount of fury, no matter how civilized one may think they are. But anyway, you know, the question is this, is just, you know, perhaps, you know, blowback, you know, potential blowback, or, you know, what do you all, what do you think, uh, uh, you know, uh, how should the art world like deal with this particular issue in this country on something which is politically, historically uh, uh, flammable? It's a really good question. Yeah. A really, really good question. Because there's, of course, two schools of thought with these, you know, you re if you remove the statue, uh, put them in a museum with some context to it or, or, or add a plaque or something to explain all of this. This is nothing really new, I think, throughout our history and throughout world history. You've, you see these kind of examples pop up all the time. You know, there's a reason why all the ancient Greek and, and, and Egyptian statues have their noses all busted up and stuff, you know. So, so it's a super difficult question to answer. And it's, I think, sometimes harder to answer for somebody sitting here than for somebody sitting, you know, in the deep south or something, like you were saying, that has to walk in front of that. I, I, I it, it's one that I'll take a pass on that one because 
I know that the reason that Fidel Castro never, ever wanted any statues built of him is that he knows that, you know, when that clears up, there's going to be a lot of Cubans knocking down statues. So he's like, okay, I'll take a pass on it now. <laughs> well, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that raises the question, how important is culture to society? How important is it? How important is it that paintings remain, that sculpture remains, that literature remains, that you know, films remain. And in is that case, it, history. Right. I mean, how important is culture to any society? And what defines culture? Because what you're de de talking about is really like a beginning to eliminate the cultural history of a place. Right. I, I if, like the idea of the museum plus context approach. And one vital piece of context about these statues that we're talking about is that a lot of them were not put up right after the Civil War or on some big anniversary of the Civil War. Boom. They were put yeah. up during yeah, the yeah. fight to desegregate the schools. Right. Mm -hmm. And they, they clustered much more around the times related to that struggle than to the Civil War. So they're not really commemorating the Civil War. They're aimed at a different a different kind of statement, really. So if you must have the statues stay up somehow, I would say put them in a museum and point this out. That's a great point. I'd also point out that, that not all forms of iconoclasm are the same. Um, you know, the case of the Bamiyan Buddhas, that wasn't just an attack on, you know, a religious statue. That was an attack on an ethnic group that, was, um, yes. that lived in mm -hmm. that area. The, and, and there's no religious monopoly on iconoclasm. I mean, when Protestants in Holland in the 17, uh, late 16th century attacked Catholic art, that was very much an attack on, on Catholics. Mm -hmm. um, I don't sense that people saying that I don't want to live with a statue of a Civil War general are attacking white people. I don't feel like there's a specifically targeted ethnic aggression that's going on in saying we want these things to come down because we've lived with them too long. Um, I think they're attacking outdated ideologies, they're attacking misconceptions of history. Um, but I don't feel that same sense of it being, you know, a direct ethnic clash in the way Bamiyan was. This lady in the hat, and then the lady on the back row behind her. My name is Peggy Wilbur. I'm what, 10 minutes. 10-second statement. I am totally not offended by anything you said tonight. I think it's a wonderful, ah, wonderful darn it. presentation. Thank you. Um, okay, now for the question. This, are you offended? This may offend you. Please listen or don't listen or leave this gallery. When did that start? Was that in, a, was that in response to a court case or when did that, I hear it all the time on NPR, but do we know exactly when that got going? And one more thing, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Did anybody ever get offended by him and all those skulls? Thank you very much. Offended by what? I, I couldn't yeah, quite hear the question. Could you restate the question? Oh, I was just, is this working? Yeah. Yes. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay, these trigger warnings and you might be offended and you know, leave the gallery and turn down the radio. There might be children around. When did they start? Did that, was that a response to a court case or? Some editor just figured that out, or what? And also Basquiat, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Did anyone ever get offended by these black skulls of his? Thank you so much again. Oh, I wasn't offended by anything you said tonight. I think you heard that. OK, Bye -bye. thank you. I'm not done yet. <laughs>
I mean, I think there's a long history of people um, getting angry at art. Um, I think there's a cultural inflection point with the culture wars in the, in the 1980s where um, I think people realized they could leverage um, art world controversies for direct political gain. Um, and I, I think also that as the, you know, as we democratize forms of communication, people think of themselves much more as critics. Um, people are less intimidated by art now than they were 20, 40, 50, mm -hmm. 100 years ago. And they feel, you know, in, enfranchised to have opinions. And they probably reach for the word I'm offended um, because it's, it's ready to hand. I know certainly I get a large number of letters and emails that begin with, you know, some, I, you know, you, you've offended me. Um, and I often have a sense that, well, they picked that word because they didn't really have a more nuanced one, but um, usually one exchange with them and they're a lot less offended. Well, they, so, but they, specifically with respect to the, idea, the notion of, as you said, putting the sign out front or putting a uh, disclaimer at the beginning of a, maybe a classic but, work of literature that says, hey, you know, There's another take piece, it easy. though, that caused, I think, um, problems in art culture in the 80s, and that had to do with the National Endowment for the Arts. And that had to do, I think, with the state, with the, the nation, funding artists that then the work, because it was funded by tax dollars, that's what, that's where the money going into the coffers, that that money then was being given to artists and that work wasn't being appreciated, wasn't acceptable. And so like, that was the case with Maplethorpe and a number of other artists. Right, the, right, the Piss Christ that was in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn. So I think that's another piece of it is like, who's paying for it? Who's funding it? Um, and I think what maybe started it is that a lot, the NEA was a big supporter of a lot of individual artists. And after that, they stopped supporting individual artists. It became um, in, in, institutional support. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers. The lady in the back row here. And yes, um, Basquiat, um, his work was considered offensive by some critics at the time. He was a con Basquiat. It was? Yeah, he was a thank controversial you. artist. Uh, it just gets seen outside M. A. New York. M.A. Torbay, the first thing I want to say is thank you to the panel for being here, taking time out of your obviously very busy schedules. And I was here the day that the uh, guy was able to keep the microphone for half an hour, so I appreciate what you've uh, done. Um, in listening to all of this, I'm reminded of how what used to be acceptable in national and regional um, monuments is no longer. What uh, used to be unacceptable with the Vietnam War Memorial is. Um, what used to be unacceptable in music lyrics now is. Mm. Literature, um, art, of course. And I'm reminded of one other thing, and I'd like to ask the panel if you see any similarities or parallels in names of local sports teams and names of musical groups. Mm. Well, to an extent, these things are, are all the product of uh, countless social negotiations. We talk with our friends and our family about what we think is OK and uh, try to form opinions that way. And uh, we're not always going to line up. And so there'll be a certain degree of, of uh, shifting uh, just just from that process because because it's not possible for us all to hold the same opinions and so we uh, we reach out for the opinions of others by by negotiating we talk we take stands with one another but you know try not to get too far away from consensus and so uh, 
there will, there will certainly be things that will sit around for many, many years and then suddenly appear offensive. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to reach for censorship. And it also doesn't necessarily mean that there is something wrong with us. It might not be the case that either of those is true. Uh, would I want to be the owner of a team called the Redskins? No, I, I wouldn't. I, I don't like that. Do I think that they should be uh, forcibly denied that appellation? No, I don't think that either. I, I, I think that that's a, a choice that some people are making that I happen not to agree with, and society is big, and that's often how it works. I think there's also a bit of an illusion that people are suddenly more offended by things. You know, when it comes to the Redskins, I think people have been offended by that for a long time. It's just more recently we're listening to those voices. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It's not as if suddenly people are getting you know, thin-skinned. It's that people who were not allowed to talk, who weren't being heard, are being heard today. And that's a good thing. And also, as the question arises, suddenly you begin to think about it. It's like, yeah, like, like you know, why should we call a team the Redskins? You know, where before it wasn't part of the conversation, where now it becomes part of the conversation. It's like, oh, yeah, I think I really need to reconsider the names of teams or I mean, I think music groups is a totally different story. I mean, that is meant to shock. That is meant to get to get attention. This lady right here, and we're going to end on this note. No pressure. No, sorry. Right up here. Well, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Do what you were going to do. You're right. My name's Agatha Tomasic, and with regards to the question of censorship, um, with art being more widely distributed now and across different channels, how do parents protect their kids? Also under consideration is different standards for censorship, um, considering that. I mean, films have, you know, a five-year-old's not going to walk into an R-rated movie, even if it's artistic, but when I was a docent at the Corcoran, you'd have field trips walk in, of kids and you'd see the statue of a naked lady, you know, the Greek slave. Um, how do parents work around that? I mean, I don't know why a kid can't see a statue of a naked lady. I mean, to me, that's not a problem, you know? But, so I wouldn't be the right person to ask, but. Um, you know, there's a, a fairly famous statue in Rotterdam that I saw a few years ago. Um, it is ostensibly a Santa Claus holding a Christmas tree, but the Christmas tree looks very much like a popular sex toy. Um, <laughs> in fact, it doesn't look at all like a Christmas tree. Um, and I remember when I first encountered it, I thought, how do you, I mean, what do you, how do you live with this thing? You know, and exactly that. You know, boy, if I had kids, I, how do I explain why Santa's holding, you know, this sex toy? You know, and then I thought about it for a while, and then I kept passing it every day, and it just began to lose all of its offensiveness. It just seemed sort of silly. Um, you know, I think that we have a lot of tools we can reach for when we see something that unsettles us, and laughter is one. The flag of Virginia has a lady exposing her breast. You know, I've always, we're talking about, I was talking about that earlier. I always wonder why, you know, if I was a kid in Virginia when I was a kid, I would be like going, huh, why, why, why is that that? Be quiet. <laughs> so, so, so you talk when, to your kids, right? Yeah, I mean, so, I, it's, yeah. I, I took my daughter to the Hirshhorn, and maybe you'll know the name of the artist who did this, but there was a statue of a gigantic, more than life-sized, completely naked man crouched in the corner. 
And she thought it was hilarious. Oh, that's that. Yeah. And, and uh, we talked about it. And uh, it was more or less natural color, pretty pretty yeah. close to like that's what an actual exactly. naked guy would look like. And we talked about it, and that was that. And it was not traumatic. It was not terrifying. It didn't warp her little brain. Uh, you talk to your kids about these things, and, and that's... Maybe that's a conversation that parents really don't want to have, you know, the talk about sex with your kids. But I and think that's, that's I, I maybe think part more of the an problem issue here. would be maybe violence. You know, yeah. to me, that's a different story when yeah. you see things that, you know, I, I don't think children need to be exposed to sort of certain kinds of violence. But I think things which are natural, I don't have a problem with that. But like, I wouldn't have wanted a kid to see that mouse decapitated. I mean, I think that would have. I mean, it freaked me out, so. <laughs> and that's what the children pattern their relationship to art and their parents' relationship to right. art. Um, if, if you're frequently consuming violent movies on television in the living room, then it's likely your kids kind of develop interest in violent movies. Well, playing if, games, you know, violent games. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, but I, I, you know, I think if you're uh, not made uncomfortable by certain kinds of art that pushes boundaries on the sexual front, it's unlikely that your kids will be uncomfortable by it either. Please join us for our next panel discussion in this series, Freedom, Art as Messenger. The event is The Imagery of Freedom. It'll be Wednesday, June 5th. Uh, more information about Cato's art exhibition and programming can be found in the foyer. Uh, you can also learn more by visiting our website, cato.org slash artmessenger. Our reception will be held in the Winter Garden out here. You can uh, take in the art as well. Uh, and in the uh, lobby foyer, foyer area in the lower level. Uh, we encourage you to, to take this time to explore all of the artwork. All, well, not all, most of the pieces are still available for sale. Please thank our panel and please join us for more discussion. <laughs>